Law, Policy, and Markets. I'm Alan Marks. Today, I'm joined by two partners from Millbank, Alexandra Grant in Leverage Finance and Anna Gerwitz in Capital Markets, both based in London. You are operating in a space we're doing with institutional sophisticated investors who likely have their own ESG team, by the way, who are flipping through your OM. And investors are getting smarter and asking us the right questions on transactions when ESG matters come up. Let's get to it. ESG, or environmental, social, and governance, is more than a trendy buzzword. It's a set of principles and metrics that increasingly shape the ways in which companies are doing business and raising capital around the globe. Investors and financial institutions are already using ESG metrics to screen investments, set terms in complex transactions, and meet evolving compliance and disclosure requirements. This episode is part of our special ESG series within the Law, Policy, and Markets podcast. In the debt finance space, ESG concerns arise in two different ways. One is the use of proceeds from the issuance in capital markets of so-called green bonds or other securities to fund investments that improve the environment or serve social goals. The other way is by rewarding companies with lower interest rates on debt borrowed from institutional lenders or banks, so long as the borrowers meet KPIs or key performance indicators for sustainability, decarbonization, or other ESG metrics. In Europe, the Sustainable Finance Disclosure Regulation, known as SFDR, and the EU Taxonomy Regulation are designed to reorient capital flows toward a more sustainable economy by, among other things, creating a classification system for sustainable activities, preventing greenwashing, and increasing accountability and transparency. The UK is implementing similar rules. The longer-term trend to incorporate ESG and sustainability considerations into debt markets seems likely only to grow. Today's guests regularly handle ESG and sustainability-linked products in the London and European debt finance markets. Alexander Grant covers leveraged finance and the institutional loan market, and Anna Gerwitz handles high-yield bonds and other capital markets transactions. Alex and Anna, thanks very much for taking the time to get together today. Thank you. No problem. Happy to. One of the things that's striking, if you look at markets right now, and you know, a lot of things have changed. We have volatility, we have changes in interest rates, and lots of uncertainty. There is one through line that we're seeing on both sides of the Atlantic and also in Asia, and that's the increasing relevance and importance of ESG, ESG metrics, and how that translates into both access to capital and perhaps even cost of capital. And I know you've both been very active in this area. Just kind of, you know, first 30,000 feet view before we dive down more deeply into the details. Maybe, Alex, can you tell us a bit about how that's playing out in the current market that you're seeing? Over the last couple of years, we've seen absolutely huge increase in the number of loans and bonds that have some kind of ESG criteria attached to them, uh, particularly something that we call sustainability-linked loans and bonds. High level, that's where the, the margin or the pricing of the, the loan or bond goes up or down, depending on whether certain ESG criteria are complied with. Yeah, and when you say large, I mean, I, just to put it in context, I think just in the institutional loan market in Europe, just a few years ago, maybe between 10, 15, maybe 20% of the issuances would have had some kind of a green bond or sustainability-linked ratchet uh, associated with them. And now it's nearly half, uh, just in a couple of years. I mean, that, that's quite dramatic growth. 
Yeah, on the loan side, I think we saw 43% last year now. Um, that was actually up from 5% just the year before. So it's been a huge, huge increase. That's, and that trend is continuing. And if you look at capital markets, how are you seeing ESG filter through to the new issues that you're working on? So it's been a long journey. We're primarily focused on the sub-investment grade market in, in our practice. And in that market, we have seen ESG finally proliferate. It used to be associated, green bonds were associated with very large cap, rich companies essentially that raised funds for general corporate purposes and therefore could afford to allocate the proceeds to green or greener projects. Meanwhile, on the lower down and the higher the leverage and lower down the rating spectrum, it was not seen as something feasible because most of the proceeds were used for either refinancing or for leveraged buyouts. And therefore, we lack that green bond key element, which is the one that connects the use of proceeds to the greenness. Once the market was open for sustainability-linked bonds, the issuer just flooded to it. It's a very different concept because it actually rewards good behavior and it rewards improvement. It doesn't require sort of an upfront spent of money, which may have not been available. The LBO market has been absolutely booming last year, and it was for the first time possible to properly implement an ESG financing also in the context of a leveraged buyout, which with a green bond was just very hard, if not impossible, to do before, given the properly stringent green bond criteria. So if you look at the difference, and that's an important one, I'm glad you flag it, between sustainability-linked instruments where the pricing will vary depending on whether certain metrics are met. Uh, I'll give you an example. I worked on a, myself, actually, on a sustainability-linked issuance last year, working on another one right now, uh, which is a U.S. private placement for a company, shipping company. And in these transactions, when the fleet becomes greener, the pricing becomes better on the debt. That's very different than a certified green bond where it's the use of proceeds you know, for some kind of environmentally beneficial purpose, uh, it makes a difference. And I'll stick with you for a second. If, if you look at green bonds and green bond certification, I suspect that the what one can call a green bond has become a little more flexible as well in the last decade. Yes, for sure. The, the most important aspect was that the criteria now allow refinancing to be, if you can find projects that you financed in the recent period, you can allocate the green bond proceeds even though what you're doing is refinancing on the concept that money at the end of the day is fungible and you have spent those proceeds on what we call eligible projects. Actually, that was one of our big push was to, before the explosion of the sustainability link bond, was to just educate issuers that there were more paths available to them to do a green bond than what they previously thought. Equally, with transactions being done on a quite quick timetable and certain constraints, many specifically sub-investment grade issuers just did not have the bandwidth to approach this process. In the last year, the market matured so much that I think everybody is very focused on the topic and will actually spend the time to figure out with really actually cutting edge advisors how to do this efficiently and effectively and actually provide them with, if not a cheaper financing, at least a more diverse pool of investors that will look at their debt. Right, which also can help, of course, the, the pricing competition. There's more tension. Indirectly. Yeah, very true. Uh, Alex, if you look at the, the loan market again, too, what's really driving this interest? Is it borrowers or issuers that are using this as a way to broaden their capital pools? 
Is it investors or lenders that are particularly focused on this, or is it regulations? And obviously in the EU, there's been a significant push. We're also seeing the UK and the United States in this area. What's, what's the biggest factor? I think it's really being driven by all of those, Alan, as you correctly say. I mean, I think the institutional investors who buy the debt uh, are all looking to increasingly integrate ESG into their overall investment strategies. And then on the private equity sponsor side, so the people who are actually driving the incurrence of this debt in the LBO market, their LPs are pushing them to consider ESG and in valuation and, and asset selection. It's definitely something that obviously, given that the massive increase last year sort of shows this, it's definitely something that, you know, it's going through the market at a huge rate and everyone on all sides is keen to, to push forward. So I know from a policy standpoint, one of the big debates, and we're seeing it here with, you know, SEC, for example, has promulgated a proposed new rule on ESG and climate risk disclosures, which is happening in parallel with a similar push in the European Union. Obviously, there's a difference between disclosure rules that apply or could apply in capital markets transactions as opposed to corporate reporting and corporate tracking, which Europe has already been, of course, quite a bit ahead of the United States. But those are things which are designed by and large in the U.S. context to protect investors, to make sure the disclosures are being made and that they're accurate, they're material to investment decisions, as opposed to the so-called double materiality, which I think is probably more prevalent on some of the European initiatives, where it's not just to protect investors or, or market participants or to protect issuers from risk with respect to non-disclosure, but also to effect real change in this area. How does that matter on the ground when you're doing a deal, or does it? It makes European issuers probably likely a little bit more open to disclosure because they know they have to, especially certain listed entities that are getting subject to increasing regulation. And in effect, most of our transactions being private transaction in the debt space equally sort of helps them open a dialogue with investors. We can talk about that we have all sorts of risk factors and disclaimer in addition to protect the to issuer from, from any liability. And this market is not as litigious as the U.S., which does help in, in terms of sort of fostering an environment of transparency. So in Europe, you are likely doing a private transaction if you are doing it in a sub-investment grade space and therefore you still need to comply with, with, with you have still have 10 to 5 liability to deal with, but you are operating in a space we're doing with institutional sophisticated investors who likely have their own ESG team, by the way, who are flipping through your OM. And investors are getting smarter and asking us the right questions on transactions when ESG matters come up. So we are working in a sphere with sophisticated players and issuers who are trying to do their best I mean, on the loan side, obviously, all the disclosure is not relevant in the way that Anna was describing. But interestingly, we've been seeing a lot more queries from clients and other banks, investors asking, have we been seeing people asking for different information, undertakings in the documentation, extra things that investors in the debt may be needing as a result of the enhanced regulations? Um, answer to that so far has been no, nothing's actually changed yet, but we'll see. Well, actually, it's funny because re regulatory oversight really can be relevant in financings, not just because of what regulators are doing, but because it requires market participants to use intermediaries, law firms and lawyers included, but others to make sure that you know, the right things are being done 
and the right diligence is being done. Anna, you mentioned you know, the, the sophisticated investor teams, too, that are also looking at these things. I want to look at the role of other third parties, though, because a lot of the ESG financings will, will require, especially in the sustainability-linked products, some kind of KPIs, some kind of metrics against which the ESG performance can be measured. And there's often a third-party consultant or team that's involved in that, especially if it's more technical. And similarly on green bonds, to make sure the bond proceeds are being used consistent with the green principles, they often need to be certified. And so there's this whole new industry coming up of folks who can, who can do that. What role do the third-party... The public markets have been asking for third-party opinions quite consistently rather than relying on self-certification. And this is also driven by the fact that if this is a material aspect of your offering, you do want to have, even from an issuer's perspective, you want to have this certified. And on a going-forward basis, given the, the consequences in economics, again, investors for their protection then want that to be certified. It's an ecosystem that you start dealing with the moment you move on to your ESG item on the agenda because suddenly the issuer's ESG team comes into play. You interact with each of the major investment banks these days has an ESG department that is dedicated to it and will parachute in their ESG specialists to look at your transaction together with your product specialist. And then you will together with the bank, which acts as your green advisor or sustainability advisor, you will together appoint who is going to be your second party opinion provider. And this would be an independent agency. There mi we might end up seeing some consolidation in this space and the rating agencies being very interested in this. Um, currently, they're just two big players that have a great deal of the market share. And then together, the green structuring advisor, which is the bank, the SPO provider and the issuer work on what makes sense for this particular deal. It's a very tailored process to what each issuer does. On the loan side, it's a little bit less disciplined, I would say, interestingly, as, as is often the case. So I worked on one of the first sustainability loans in the syndicated TLB market back in, it was October 2020. And yeah, there was no sustainability arranger or anyone in charge of the sort of sustainability element. The arrangers were sort of managing that. And in particular, there was no need for any kind of third party certification within the documentation. So management was setting the targets and the KPIs and management were certifying compliance or, or non-compliance with those targets going forward. All the banks were getting at the beginning of the process was a report kind of setting out the baseline way in which they calculate and set these KPIs. And, and that report was delivered. But again, it wasn't a, a requirement of the documentation or a condition precedent or anything so hardwired. I think that has developed now a little more. So there are now banks that vie for these roles of sustainability arranger or sustainability coordinator, and they seek to manage the process. We operate very much in the large cap top tier sponsor area uh, for the type of deals that we, we at Millbank do. So I'd say the vast majority of our deals still only require management certification. But I know sort of casting a bit of a broader net across the leverage finance market, probably it's maybe 50-50. And they're starting, even in the top tier space, we've seen possibly because of these roles of sustainability arrangers are, are pushing more and, and trying to standardize things more. We've seen more of a push for third party opinions to be provided um, on a yearly basis, uh, like in the bond market. And I want to look at specifically what the metrics are that people are trying to hit. So we've talked a lot about E, ES, you know, the environmental part, and that, you know, leads 
immediately me to think of greenhouse gas emissions reductions, of course, but there are certainly other things that folks are, are looking at. We, we talked, I'm going to skip the S because we talked about G and governance. Uh, you mentioned the pay gap disclosures and other things. And S, social, there are now even social products that are coming out, social bonds. But I think the UK is probably ahead of most other markets in that, in that area, as small as it is. What are some of the specific areas that investors are looking at when they look at ESNG? It depends on the on the nature of the business. Some that I've worked on, so was, as you said, reduction in carbon emissions. It was actually a packaging company, uh, and they actually sort of manufactured the packaging near the companies that require the packaging. So it saves emissions in transporting the packaging around. Another one produced gearboxes. So there was it was tied to how much power was produced from wind-operated wind turbines. I've also seen, as you said, in relation to things like governance. So that tends to be sort of diversity-based, so number of women on the board and things like that. And maybe Anna can elaborate on a few more. Unfortunately, in the sub-investment European debt space, bond space, our issuers so far have slightly lacked imagination to come up with S and G. I have a couple theories um, why this is the case, including the very public nature of such disclosure and SNG tending to be differently quantifiable, slightly softer matters. And there is a decision made that perhaps something that is more well-recognized, uh, such as greenhouse gas emissions, you know, they have many of them already report scope one and scope two. And so it is to them probably, it feels more controllable and more objective uh, de- deliverable, especially because, Law bonds have long maturities, so we need to plan ahead. And there is more limited scope to amending a bond should circumstances on the ground change significantly, where I see ESG requiring the E part of the ESG being more objective. And there are actions that, you know, technically a company can take to control that. Meanwhile, the S and the G tend to be, so far, the bonds we've seen were mostly in the investment grade space, again, where they have perhaps a little bit more wiggle room in terms of uh, their dynamics. Yeah, and I guess one of the challenges is we call it ESG metrics. So a metric suggests it's something you can count, and it's certainly easier to count you know, tons of CO2 perhaps than, than other things. That said, I, I suspect that the G is of less importance in European issuances than it might be in other markets because there's already been so much more progress on some of the governance. I mean, there are other stakeholders besides shareholders, labor in particular, are already taken into account perhaps to a greater degree than they might be in the U.S. or other jurisdictions. S probably is still lacking, I suspect, in most places, but also hard to measure. Yeah. On the loan side, I imagine maybe they are a little more creative because it's in their interest to be so. Because you've got to remember on the loan side, if you hit your target, you get a decrease in your margin whereas in the bond world it's only it's only a stick <laughs> there's no carrot that's right and, and only up front not not measured recurring you know over time are you seeing trends perhaps in the future where covenants and covenant packages might be affected by ESG not just pricing or or use of proceeds I'd say issuers are would be quite hesitant to do that they have now have established sort of a baseline of issuances where there are no indenture consequences apart from the margin or redemption step up, including perhaps the most 
significant omission that one could mention would be that the ongoing reporting that's required by the various frameworks is actually not encoded in the reporting covenant in the indenture. So it would be disclosure slash reputational concern for an issuer that would skip. So let's say that you strenuously don't report, that the, the main consequence will be when the time to measure your sustainability performance target comes and you do not deliver a report, the step up is automatic. But this is currently the only consequence. Yeah, exactly. And, and the same in the loan market, although not in all deals. Um, sometimes, again, sort of top tier sponsor space, it's purely at their option, you know, whether to deliver this or not and, and have the ESG ratchet apply. But I'd say in the majority of deals, you know, it goes both up and down depending whether you've hit your target or not. And it would also go uh, up as if you hadn't met your target if you failed to deliver the information. And I guess we've seen over the years, many years, you know, environmental covenants, compliance with law covenants, those things, you know, might bootstrap in changes in law over time, over very long periods of time. Accounting, auditing, reporting requirements, one could imagine perhaps in the future if there's sustainable accountability or a sustainable accounting that's required, perhaps those reports would be needed, but again, only if they serve a purpose for investors that justifies the administrative burden for the issuer or the borrower. Look at the market as a whole. Look at the trends you're seeing. And I'm curious because it could be that there is substantive value to a lot of the ESG work that companies are doing in order to access capital markets or, or institutional loan markets. It could be that it's a bit of window dressing, not you know inconsistent, it's not you know, dishonest or anything. It's certainly what they're trying to do, but it maybe doesn't really move the needle on the company's value or exposure to risk or compliance with markets. Or, and in some cases, I'm, I'm sure, hopefully not with our clients, but there's people who are engaged in greenwashing. Do you think we're looking at the, as the market weights ESG things more heavily, are we looking at a, a truly electric Porsche race car? Are we looking at a race car badge on a, on a Volkswagen sedan? Or are we looking at a low emissions tab on an old diesel that's polluting? What I like about the sustainability-linked bonds is that they're focused on improvement. They're not focused on being perfect from the start. They're focused on being better. And this is what has actually opened the market to a much greater variety of issuers who before would never consider a green bond, for example, which was the, the, the main alternative. So I think that they, the issuers I've encountered have perhaps a little bit of hesitation, but they've all try to embrace this in, in good faith. You know, the financing is just one aspect. Their entire organizations are focused on carbon emissions for a variety of reasons and factors and stakeholder pushes of their own. And if they can add financing as another aspect of their ESG initiative, that's a bonus. They, I don't, I don't recall them having kickstarted a ESG initiative with a financing. It was already in place. It might have been in its early days, but it was part of a greater organizational focus. And we are just one part of that puzzle. So if a client comes in and they're looking at an ESG or green bond transaction, what's the first guidance you would give them? What's a pitfall they should be aware of that they might not have had in front of their mind, but that you've learned from other transactions they probably should have? Probably start early. <laughs> you do not want to leave this to, to the last minute. The process has shortened significantly compared to where we started. But equally, it's something that needs to be running in parallel with the transaction as a whole. So looking back at the first couple of deals, when this was considered almost as a turnoff, the fact that it would take so long, actually 
right now with the current timelines, if you start at the start of the transaction itself, it's unlikely that you would not be able to deliver an ESG product by the end of it. If you delay significantly, I think then it becomes an obstacle rather than. So it's only a matter of timing and considering it upfront as part of structuring the deal as a whole. Yeah, and I think on the loan side, I mean, I guess advice would be different whether your your client is the borrower or, or the lender. But assuming it, assuming it's the lenders or the underwriters, I think uh, the advice make sure it's sort of locked down at the right time. So I think again, it's it's a timing point, as Anna said. I mean, in some of the deals we've seen, you know, it, it be able to be brought in, you know, after allocation of the. In- uh, commitments and syndication, which you know clearly doesn't really work for investors, or it can be put in in place with the agent's consent in the future. And I think, really, you know, from a lender and investor perspective, you, you want the details nailed down upfront. If you look at performance of these credits over time, and obviously we've been in a, a robust market with lots of liquidity and you know, relatively low default rates, you can imagine, especially with all the external shocks and uncertainties in the world, that we could enter into a recession at some point because business cycles do do that. What goes up sometimes comes back down. I'd say always in the case of economics, at least for a time. Is there a correlation between ESG risks and financial performance and if so, do they really need to be measured separately? So the biggest wave of ESG transaction was in 2021. The way most issuers have set up their targets is that according to REORG research, they will not be measured until 2023, 2024, some 2025. So whether or not they will see the economic effect and how that economic effect will impact them from failing to reach a target, I think that remains to be seen. Otherwise, I would not necessarily imply that companies that have an ESG program in place will do better than those who don't, or an ESG finance in place do better than those who don't, because equally we work for a variety of issuers, some of them equally focused on sustainability and the environment, but for one reason or the other haven't opted for this product yet. That doesn't mean that their bonds are equally impacted in secondary trading. I think they still look at the key fundamentals of, you know, getting your money back at maturity. I mean, you do have to remember that the price, uh, the margin increase and decreases we're talking about are actually pretty minimal. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so they're not they're not going to move the needle from a financial performance perspective. I think, as Anna says, it's about improving, and you know, every little counts. But but they're not huge huge sums. Yeah, but the increments do add up, certainly, on a market-wide basis. Yeah, so it's a point well taken. Last question. Looking ahead, say, three, four years from now, and ignore my business cycle comment, (laughs) ignore credit cycle for a moment, (laughs) (laughs) what role do you see ESG playing then that's, you know, different than it is now? How will it change? Will it keep keep growing? Well, it'd be interesting that the loan and bond markets have been I don't want to say shut, but a little bit in Europe, given the, the issues around around Russia and the Ukraine for the last month or so. Uh, so it'll be interesting for sure to see how the terms develop as it comes back. I think what we're seeing so far is not much has actually changed, uh, including around uh, ESG. It's actually gone a little bit more aggressive. I signed up a, a deal yesterday and uh, it had only a decrease if the target's met and no penalty if the target's not met, for example, on a best efforts basis, but they're going to try that in the market. That's the ratchet on the pricing against the, the ESG metrics. Yeah, exactly. I also think it'll be interesting to see, 
as things start to cost more uh, with increased price of fuel, you know, other inflation, are companies going to start missing the targets? Does that look bad reputationally? Or are they actually, because, you know, fuel is costing so much more, are they going to try and find cheaper ways of doing things that actually have the added benefit of being environmentally friendly? And how is that going to impact everything? Um, be interesting to see. Yeah, actually, that interplay, I think globally, when you look at it, a lot of ESG metrics are tied to supply chains. And if you think of not just scope one emissions, but scope two and scope three emissions, as they're measured, you, you have to look at your customers, but also your upstream suppliers and, and, and vendors. And at a time when there's increased energy insecurity, when there's a trade and transportation disruptions to supply chains, to say nothing of wars and politics, uh, I think that does become a much more of a complicated picture for a, a lot of companies. Anna, what do you think? Not to enter into the realm of politics, but I think, again, it will depend on the individual businesses. Due to the energy costs, we have seen some of our issuers shut down production, even if for just a short period of time. Given the cost of gas, it's going to be a real interesting choice for them as to where will their energy sources come from now on. And in some cases of some of the issuers, this decision might be taken by the governments on their behalf. We have seen recent announcements respect to Poland and the like. So I think issuers will be a little bit at the mercy of the market, what they can and can't do, because ultimately in most jurisdictions, they'll have their duties towards their shareholders to you know maximize their value and run the business in the best way possible. And as Alex said, the financial penalty of missing the bond compared to not being able to deliver a product to their customers, if they're faced with just that choice, I think I know what they're going to do. Good. Well, thank you very much. This has been a fascinating conversation. You're welcome. Thanks for having us. Thank you for joining us on another episode of Law, Policy, and Markets, Millbank Conversations. Follow us on your favorite podcast platform and learn more at millbank.com.